Lord, we thank you for your gospel writers who uh, kept a record as they saw it of uh, Jesus' presence, uh, particularly for Luke who records his birth. Um, Help us to understand the particular details that Luke chose to offer us in these passages that we might learn the things you want us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you read Luke's Gospel, you will notice particularly that Luke is very interested in context. He's always giving context for things. And here he sets out all the uh, civic leaders at the time or political leaders, who's the governor, who's the tetrarch of this place and that place, and the religious leaders, who's the high priest and so forth. And this is because Luke doesn't want us to think for a moment that this is some kind of fairy tale. Because there was all sorts of myths floating around, as there's always been, about what's most important, you know, Grimm's fairy tales and things like that. But Luke is saying this stuff is grounded in a context in history. And not just that, but it also stands in contrast to. So you've got the uh, political leaders and their power, You've got the religious leaders and their way of doing religion and then comes the Messiah in contrast. And Luke very deliberately wants you to see the way that plays differently. And so he speaks about one who is coming to prepare the way. I always find this a little bit uh, interesting because even the fact that there was a requirement of the Messiah to have someone go before to prepare the way tells us something. It tells us that this is no walk in the park. This is not an easy process that we're engaging in here. If there had been no preparation, the thing wouldn't have worked. Now, preparation is often uh, underestimated, although this church is particularly good at preparation and I believe Jenny Olver should do a master's or doctorate in it or something because she's incredibly organised. But um, critical change is never easy. It takes time. Preparing people to do something takes time. We, we live in a very instant environment. We think, you know, I was just talking with Jack before about emails. Was you, Jack? Yes, and uh, how once upon a time you'd write the letter and you'd send it off and a week later you get a response. Now you write something and bang, the response is right back there with you. And I think we've lost a sense of how long things take at the deep level because we're always fussing around at a superficial level these days. John Baptist is kind of like the advanced team. He knows people need to be prepared. This is a period of time when people had stopped listening for the voice of God. There had been about 400 years since the last prophet. And people weren't accustomed, like generations had passed and there'd been no recognised prophetic utterances. There'd been a few disturbances here and there, but nothing that people were really confident God was still speaking. So if Messiah had come into that environment, I reckon they would have just completely missed him. They almost did anyway. But John comes as one to prepare the way, to make the road straighter. Now, we've just been up the north coast. I don't know if you've ever driven up the north coast. Uh, If you did it 20 years ago as we did, 
the road was very windy, the Bulladilla Bend, and then up around um, Byron Bay, you go up and down the hills and round. It was like a goat track. And now you go up there, and the hills have been carved out, and the valleys have these bridges over them, and you do 110, and you're like a Saab jet. And you just keep going. Yeah, some people go, well, that's a shame, isn't it? But you get there a lot faster. <laughs> it, the rough places have been made smooth. The crooked places have been made straight. And you can see how it makes the way much easier. That was John's role because he came as a recognisable prophet. He came dressed in camel hair. How itchy would that be? And eating locusts and wild honey. These were code things saying, ah, he's not just the average John. He's a prophet. And he came to the outlying areas and baptised people in the Jordan. And people knew that he was a prophet. He was familiar to them. He fulfilled all the, the markers of a prophet. Ah, prophets, yes, we know what prophets are. We can respond to him. And so he, as the familiar one, pointed to that one who was unfamiliar to them. That's how learning processes go. We move from the familiar to the new. If we just had the new, we'd have no pegs to hold on to. We have to have something we know so that we can go on to the next thing. Uh, John's dressed like a prophet. He eats like a prophet. He's on the edge of the society like a prophet. He's calling people to reevaluate the way they're doing life like the prophets did of old. And people can engage John as a prophet. One of the really generous things that Robin Davies did for me when I first arrived here was she walked around. For those of you who don't know, Robin was the previous minister here. She still lives locally and is involved with the congregation, but she'd been here for 15, 18 years uh, as the minister. And she took me and introduced me to people, people I wouldn't have even known would be good to meet, and people that if I'd met on my own, they would have gone, who's this guy? But because I came with Robin and they were familiar with Robin and they like and know Robin and she said, this is David. He's taking my role at the church. And oh, you're the new Robin. <laughs> From the familiar to the new. It paves the way. And in a way, that's what John does. He was familiar. He was a prophet. They understood prophets. And he said, there's one coming who's so much greater than I am, that if I didn't tell you about him, you'd probably miss him. And so John offers a baptism for repentance. Now these are interesting things. Markers. A baptism is a marker because um, some of the most meaningful decisions we make in life would otherwise be invisible if we didn't have markers. I mean, the promises you make to the person you marry, if you didn't have the big ceremony and say those things in front of people and sign the paper and dress up in special clothes and have a party, it would be almost invisible. You know, My intention toward you is this. Does anyone know that? It's, it all happens inside of me. We have markers. In a sense, a contract that we sign is a marker of an internal intentionality. I'm making a promise to you 
But that all happens inside of me. Whether I'm going to be faithful to that or not, that all happens inside of me. So I give you a marker. I sign my name on a piece of paper. This is the marker. So markers are quite important. I remember my first year of marriage with Jo, and she'll give you a different story, I'm sure. It'll probably be very similar in some respects. But we had a tough time. Um, we're 28 years old, and at that stage that felt like we'd lived quite a lot of life and got set in our ways, believe it or not. And we came a cropper with each other quite frequently in the first year of our marriage, to the point where, like, and, you know, I'm a man and she's a woman, those of you who have been married know that's enough said. But um, there were moments when she would be doing things I really didn't understand towards me and kind of emotional stuff and I would go, what the? And I would leave the house because I just couldn't work it out. And I'd go and talk to God and say words like, God, what have you done? What have you, what have you set me up for? What have you led me into here? And uh, God would stay silent and um, <laughs> and all I'd get was, so what are you going to do, Dave? You made some promises. Are you good for them? And because we'd made those promises in public, you know, what had changed? Are you good for them? So the markers can be quite helpful. And that helped me go, you know what, I did make promises. I didn't know what I was saying at the time, but I did make those promises And yes, I am good for them and I can go back and engage something that at that point was a mystery to me. I mean, I've gotten to know her a lot better over the years, you'll be pleased to know, and vice versa. So we need markers and baptism was a marker of something that happened internally inside the person because it was about repentance. Repentance happens inside of us. Repentance is actually that point where we say, the way I am currently doing things isn't working and it needs to change. That's repentance. When you change your mind about reality, about the way to do life. At first blush, being dunked in water is a pretty odd marker, you know? Not many places do you have the marker where someone plops you in the water and pulls you out or tips water over your head. It's a bit of a strange thing. But it was a very ancient symbol Being dunked in water symbolised dying, going under, the end of something. And the use of water was, of course, for cleansing. It was about letting go of the stuff, that the accretions, the things that had stuck onto you that you wanted to wash away, becoming clean, a fresh start. So it was a very appropriate marker in that way a death, a finish, a cleansing, a new start. And John was preparing us for something so big, something so different. It's hard for us to actually even understand how big it was. Repentance and baptism were a sign that we're going to turn away from the familiar ways of doing life and understanding reality and we're looking for something new. In due course, Jesus would demonstrate what the turn was toward, but at this stage, the preparation stage was, okay, we haven't got the kingdom yet and acknowledging that. 
because until you're prepared to let go of what's familiar, what, the way you currently do it, you're not ready to take on the new. And that's why John came to prepare people to say, are you ready to let go? Are you ready to repent? Are you ready to die? Are you ready to be washed clean? Are you ready for a new start? So he makes that way, like the freeway north, makes it a bit smoother, straighter, faster, able to, effective I suppose it is. And that last little line, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Now salvation is an interesting thing. Salvation is saving the thing. And we're familiar with it. We're always saving stuff. Some people are real saver types. They go in, they save the day, they bring the thing together, they help out, they do their whatever. You know, the, the nation of the United States of America used to be the saviour of the world. They go in and they sort stuff out in amazing ways and that kind of thing. But the world has a particular way of doing salvation. It uses uh, a process where it finds who's at fault and punishes them. That's, that's what we do with justice and those sorts of things. We find out who's at fault and we stop them from doing the wrong thing and we punish them for doing the wrong thing. We find the culprit, we make them pay and equilibrium is restored in the system. We can use force or violence or whatever, that doesn't matter. The important part is find the culprit, make them pay, equilibrium restored. This is how we've come to understand justice in a way. Do you know the statue of the, the woman who's blindfolded holding the scales? So it's about balancing things up again, getting it back to equilibrium. Um, and you frequently hear those who have lost loved ones, either through misadventure or someone's um, negligence or through deliberate acts of harm, and what they want is the blood of the person who caused their loss. And you'll, you'll see it. It's a bit ghoulish in some respects. You know, somebody, you understand it because there's such a huge loss when somebody loses someone they love and they want the person who caused it to pay with their blood or be locked up forever or suffer something so that their suffering can be matched with the suffering of the perpetrator. We kind of understand that. It's the, the blood to restore equilibrium. Interestingly, the Hebrew idea of justice has none of that in it. The Hebrew idea of justice is the idea of good governance, of leading things in a way that is good and wholesome for everyone. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, but it is good if we make the buggers pay. Well, it's not in the essential concept. The Koine Greek concept of judgment has two aspects. It's about decisions and right relating. So decisions and right relating, which is very similar to governance. It's this idea that we've got to make the thing work for everybody. It's very uh, similar to the notion of shalom, if you like, which is wholeness and restoration and peace not based on scaring everyone so that they don't do anything wrong but the notion of allowing people to make their contribution to each other because they want to be a blessing. It's a, it's a very positive thing rather than a holding back thing. And this is the radical difference that Messiah 
brings in. And this is why John had to come to prepare the way because it's so foreign to us. I don't think the church has understood it very well yet in most places. And for ourselves, we struggle with it because we're so ingrained in the world's way and it works to a point. It's just not the kingdom. And the Messiah comes and offers us an alternate way which at first blush seems like it won't work. It'll bring about chaos and to some extent it does. And Jesus himself said that. You think I come to bring peace? No. I bring a sword. And father will be against son and mother against daughter and there's going to be some chaos. Things are, there's going to be upheaval. But if you want to get to the kingdom, that's part of the process, which is the whole apocalyptic thing. Messiah does not conform to the judgment retribution matrix of justice. In fact, Messiah comes and allows himself to be subject to our justice matrix and be condemned by it as an innocent in order to show up how broken that matrix is. Is because if the best justice system we can offer condemns the innocent, condemns God, we haven't got it together, have we? In fact, that tells us something more about ourselves than perhaps we want to see. Messiah wants to lead us into a more encompassing reality, the reality that none of us are innocent. That's the reality. None of us are innocent. None of us are holy. None of us are pure. None of us are perfect. None of us. None of us are in the right place to pass ultimate judgment. Left to our own devices, we would all choose to murder the innocent before taking responsibility for our violence. That's what Messiah shows us. And that's not very comfortable to be aware of. In fact, sometimes we'll make all sorts of excuses that says, that's not me. But the strange thing is, as we embrace that reality and we engage the journey that that reality creates, we move towards reconciliation with God, with ourselves, with each other, with the planet. It's, it's an acceptance of, in a sense, how broken we are left to our own devices and how we need to be shown a new way. And that's what Messiah shows us. Now, the funny thing here, not funny, not funny, ha-ha, strange, funny, weird, funny, is that the expose of the brokenness of the world's systems is happening apace at the moment. And I may have referenced this before. It's one of my pet themes. But whether you're a Christian or not, whether you have any faith at all or not, that which was once the unquestioned way of solving the world's problems is now being exposed as ineffective. It used to be the person with the biggest army solved all the problems. That was Rome way back when. It was uh, the British Empire for a while. It was the American century for a little while. But it doesn't work anymore. Now you can get handfuls of people with things made out of fertiliser, for goodness sake, who can wreak the deepest havoc at the heart of the greatest power. Force and violence 
are losing their efficacy to bring about a so-called peace. It's no longer working. The tried and true mechanisms for holding chaos in check are losing their power. It's almost like the world of post-antibiotic infections. Once upon a time, uh, you get an infection, you use an antibiotic, it'll knock it out and we're sweet. Now there's infections that the antibiotics won't touch. What are we going to do with them? We can't just use more. In fact, the more antibiotics you use, the less effective they become. And that's what we're seeing in many ways in the world with regard to salvation. It is no longer sufficient to attempt to hold back the threat of evil and violence by using greater forms of evil and violence which is what we've relied on in the past. That's why we need Messiah. He comes and shows the way of self-giving love. It's foolishness. It's anathema. It's insanity. It's the way to get yourself killed and the way to salvation. It's a paradox. See, the fact that the Messiah needed someone to prepare the way is an indicator how radically different the way of the kingdom is. It's not like anything that we are familiar with. It's not like our instincts. It's not like the patterns we see in politics or religion or anywhere else. Messiah does things so unfamiliar to us that at first blush they don't make sense. They seem like foolishness. And yet in there is salvation. When you give yourself, you find eternal life. When you love beyond rationality, when you embody the grace that God has towards us, that is the salvation. That's what we offer to one another when we follow Jesus. That's what we live and show by our life. We follow him. That's what he did. Challenging stuff, yes? Never do it perfectly, do we? No. But that's where we're headed. That's why we needed John. So unfamiliar, he needed to go, I'm a prophet, but get ready for this. And we're still getting ready, aren't we? We're still coming to terms with it. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, your grace to us is astounding and we don't encounter it any other place except from your heart. Even when it comes through others, it's, it's your heart that comes through and we thank you for your amazing grace. It is both liberating and at some places frightening as you call us to enter into a life so rich that embraces death and there's paradox and mystery there, but we live fully, we give ourselves and we become a blessing. Help us to hear what John was saying. Help us as we lead up to Christmas to look for the Messiah who does things so differently that we might follow him to the glory of your name. 
Amen.